That was my theme song that was about to come up there just as I was standing up here. Actually, that's a fantastic song. And actually, everything that we've sung about so far is about the name of Jesus today. And we believe that it is the name of Jesus that brings healing and salvation. In fact, we are told that if the name of Jesus Christ be lifted up, then all men would be drawn unto him. And obviously, that is our desire today, that the name of Jesus would be exalted above all else. Uh, today, I want to actually start with something that seems unrelated, but it is a demonstration of God's faithfulness, and it is an opportunity for me to say thanks. Uh, in case you didn't know, my mom moved here this week, and I was so excited to see about 30 of you guys show up this week to help her move in. So I just want to, before I get into the message, I just want to say thanks. I really appreciated that, and uh, looking forward to having her as a part of our ministry here. She doesn't want me to call her out and have her stand up, but she's sitting over there just to let y'all know. Uh, so we're really glad to have her here. I also wanted to ask for your help regarding something, and this one will actually fit very well with what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, but as everyone here probably knows, Texas has experienced horrendous flooding over the past week or so uh, as a result of Hurricane Harvey. Uh, because of it, there have been many people who have lost their homes. Many of them have lost many of the basic supplies that we count basically as um, something we take for granted. And uh, many of them right now do not have a lot of those things. Uh, there are many organizations that are out there trying to supply relief and support to the families uh, who have been affected by it. And one of those organizations is uh, called Global Partners. Global Partners is, uh, actually it's not Global Partners, it's World Hope. Uh, am I getting this wrong? I think it's, uh, it doesn't matter. It's the Wesleyan Church. Uh, the Wesleyan Church has decided that we need to act, and what they've done is they have asked several churches to open up uh, a place for the people to be able to come and to bring food and supplies and water and all kinds of things. I put out a list earlier this week, uh, actually yesterday I put out a list, uh, and they have set up various uh, delivery points where you can come and deliver those supplies. Our church was one of the churches that was asked to be in that role. Amanda Dilday is going to head that up, and I will tell you, it's kind of a short window because they need the supplies now, not two or three weeks down the road. Uh, this coming Saturday will be the last day that we can actually receive items for that, but if you would like to participate in that, uh, we have a list that I can make available to you. If you have not seen it already, uh, you can get access to that list of items that they're looking for. They will pick up here at the church on, at, on Saturday at 2 o'clock. So if you would like to bring some, if you bring it to us after that, we may not be able to get it to them. Uh, so we really need you to, to get it to us by then. Uh, we'll make sure that the offices are open to where you can come and deliver them throughout the week. Uh, but we really appreciate that. I know that those families appreciate it. When I was reading the Wesleyan Church's statement on uh, the relief effort that is taking place, I was thrilled to see that actually my roommate from college is the pastor that they named, and he is there working firsthand with them, and he actually attended this church. I don't know if you guys knew that, but he attended this church when we were in college as well. So in many ways, this church is still meeting needs all over the place. And uh, I am very grateful for the ministry that this church has uh, done, even to get him to that point. But 
now we have the opportunity to invest in them. So I just want to encourage you guys with that. Uh, if you have any questions, please see Amanda or myself today. Amanda, would you stand up? Just I know you got a, a, actually two kids in your arms right now, just so they can see who you are and they'll know who to go see. I appreciate her willingness to serve, actually her eagerness to serve and help make that happen. So... Let's begin this morning with a passage of Scripture. It's a passage that all of us are relatively familiar with. It comes from Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to look at just, the, just a couple of verses, verses 3 through 4, and then we'll look a little bit later at the rest of the passage. Uh, but beginning in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, this is what we read. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. Abolition of the slave trade in England was delayed for more than 10 years because five pro-abolitionists in Parliament were at the opera when the vote was being taken. Every year there was a guy named William Wilberforce, and every year he had worked tirelessly toward one goal, the abolition of the slave trade in England. In 1796, he felt as if the tide had finally turned in his favor. And when he brought the bill before Parliament... As he did every year of his political career, he was nervously waiting for the results of the vote. Sadly, the pro-abolition side fell short by four votes. Lamenting later in his diary, Wilberforce wrote, Enough. I'm having an issue here with my microphone. I apologize. Enough at the opera to have carried it. It turns out that those parliamentarians were attending the opening night of an opera presentation called The Two Hunchbacks. Unfortunately, it would not be until 1807, remember it was 1797, that they could have passed the bill. During that time, hundreds of thousands of slaves would lose their lives because five people wanted to go to the opera. It is no wonder that King David wrote in the book of Psalms, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. The Hebrew word for wicked is actually a little less extreme than this. However, it literally means worthless or that which doesn't have any real value. Yet how many times do we, like these parliamentarians, set worthless things before our eyes? When people all around us are hurting, dying, and desperately needing our help. Well, I'm not sure that there's a better question as we just promoted the opportunity to help people who are hurting in Texas and in Louisiana today. How many times do we turn on the TV or watch a movie when there are much bigger issues that are going on that God is very much concerned about? In essence, we are following in the footsteps of Solomon, who chased after the many things that seemed important at the time. He chased after money, he chased after wild living, he chased after women, and so much more. Yet, after all is said and done, he realizes that he's just been chasing after the wind. 
According to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 14, it says, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What we find is that so often we seek fulfillment in things. In other things that sometimes they matter, but usually they don't. They can be things that can be very good, but they are things that truly will not bring fulfillment. As a child, we dreamed of what life would be like when we grew older. We had certain images in our mind. We pictured that we would have a nice home. We would have a nice car. We'd have a beautiful spouse, a beautiful family. We would have fame. We would have all of these great things that seemed very attractive. All of the things that we would identify as being success. Yet the truth is, those things could never grant fulfillment. I don't know about you, but maybe you have been able to accomplish many of those things. Maybe you have the nice house. Maybe you have the nice car. Maybe you have the beautiful family that you dreamed of. But those things are never enough to truly grant us fulfillment. I'm 44 years old, and I believe that I have most of what I dreamed of having but it's not truly going to bring me fulfillment. See, the only thing that will truly grant fulfillment in this life is a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ alone. Everything else, it'll feel good for a time and you'll enjoy it, but the reality is eventually that feeling of excitement and even a temporary type of fulfillment will fade away. I confess that what I've done has often been done out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Almost with this mentality that I wanted these things for myself because I either thought that I deserved better things or I wanted others to know that I somehow had arrived. When I look at this passage in Philippians chapter 2, so often we are drawn to the image of Christ at the end of this little section. But in reality, we need to simply stop and look at ourselves first. What are the things that you do out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? What are the things that you do that you know it's done simply because you want the recognition or because you want the things? Unfortunately, the reality of a mindset like this is often we are filled with much pride and arrogance. The problem with our pride and arrogance is that it is one of the few things that God clearly defines in his scriptures that he opposes. James 4, 6 says God opposes the proud. Proverbs 8, 13 says I hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs 16, 5 says the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Luke 1, verse 51 through 53, a part of Mary's song that I shared with you guys just a couple weeks ago. Mary says, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away. And why does God hate pride so much? Psalm chapter 10 verse 4 says, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Do you understand why God hates the pride of man? 
Do you understand why we're instructed here in Philippians to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Because what happens is so often we begin to live merely for us as opposed to living for him. The irony is this. Pride keeps you from seeking God, yet we often We often seek God just to find his blessing, to find the things that we put our pride in. It's almost as if we are using God and we say to to ourselves that that's not the way we are. But honestly, I want you to look at the things that are in your life for a moment. And I want you to consider what it is that causes you the feeling of fulfillment. Where do you find your fulfillment? Is it in God? What if right now God were to take everything from you? Would you still love him? Would you still be grateful for him? Would you look and almost be angry with him because it would seem as if his love for you somehow is no longer extended? I want you to know that nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That does not mean that he will give you everything that you want. It doesn't mean that life will always be easy and you won't have to worry about anything difficult coming your way, but nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Now, what that means is there may be times you don't have things that you want, but his grace will be sufficient for you. He will be there to walk alongside you. My question is this, are you using God to get something from him? Or is God himself the goal of your striving? If that were working, I would turn my other one off. And my sound man's already next door, so I apologize for that. The point is this. We have, we have a God who is more than sufficient for everything that we need. And he is the one who will provide us. You want to have pride in something? Have it in him. You want to have pride in something? Don't let it be the people that are in your life. The truth is people, man, they're with you for a time, but there'll come a time where they will not be, either by their own choice or by death. The fact is people move, people change. The things that you have, sometimes they'll bring fulfillment, but there'll come a time where it's not enough. But Jesus Christ will always be enough. If we truly want fulfillment, we must find it in the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Can I turn this off now? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we see within this passage is an instruction for us to take on the mind of Christ, to to embrace the mind of Christ. And there's a part of me when I read that, I think that really this is telling me that I should try harder to think like him. But that's not really what this passage says. 
It doesn't tell us that you need to somehow embrace this thought process that is different, but rather it tells us to take on the mind as if it is a mindset that is given the moment we come to him. The moment we embrace the cross and we receive his grace, we are given the mind of Christ. We are given the opportunity to know him personally and to think like him and to see things like him. Take on the mind of Christ. What that means is we no longer look at the world the way we looked at it before. The problem is that for many of us, though, we have gone to an altar and we have prayed and we have asked God to forgive us of our sins and we have embraced many aspects of the Christian life, but there is still this sense of pride that we struggle with. The problem is that God says, I hate pride. I oppose it. Yet for many of us, what we have done is we have tried to embrace both Christ and this pride that we find in our selfishness and our vain conceit. There is a problem within the body of Christ when we fix our eyes upon anything other than Christ and his cross. Far too often what has happened is we have fixed our eyes on ourselves and called it Christian. We have fixed our eyes on things that seemed attractive to us and allowed that to become a part of our faith. But i got to tell you, that is not the way it's supposed to be. We are to take on the mind of Christ and his spirit dwelling in us will automatically begin to change the way we think. Now, maybe it doesn't happen overnight. I get that. You may come to Christ and it may take years for you to overcome some of the things that you've struggled with. But what happens is the mind of Christ will eventually overtake the mind of this world. I know we'll always be drawn. There'll always be that sinful draw. But I have a God who has already been victorious. Through Jesus Christ, I know that all of us can be victorious. And I believe that even in the mind, he can grant us victory. What does it mean to have the same mind of Christ? It is to love the world around us sacrificially. You begin to think of the things that Jesus Christ did. Even in this passage, it identifies one who is over everything. He is the one who is God himself, yet he chose the humble dwelling of a human body. Experienced humanity in all sorts of ways, willingly went to the cross, becoming the sacrifice for you and for me. You want to move away from the pride that so often plagues humanity, and yes, even Christianity? Begin by looking to the cross. Jesus Christ laid aside all of the pride that he had. He was God and he knew it. He could have done anything and he knew it. He could have stopped this at any moment. But he chose not to. He willingly laid aside the pride simply to embrace the cross. And we too must be people who would seek the cross. As we seek the cross, we by nature also pursue Christ. In Christ we see incredible humility and sacrifice. 
Later in this particular passage, Paul says that he is going to send two people to Philippi. He's actually writing a letter here. Uh, In this letter, he is encouraging them. He's trying to build them up a little bit. These are people that he loves. These are folks that he has ministered to for several years. We're not sure exactly how long, probably 10 to 15 years he has known them by the time he writes this. If you remember back in the book of Acts, we have uh, the story of uh, the Philippian church and how their their foundation was established. Paul comes to them as he does. Uh, he meets with a woman named Lydia who she invites him into her home. He ministers to her and several others. Then there's a slave girl that he gets to minister to. This slave girl would literally have the demon cast out of her. Uh, Then you have a Philippian jailer who he would come to Christ. These are the people who he's writing to. These are the people that he loves and he cares for. But in this particular passage, Paul says that he is about to send two people to the church. The first is Timothy. Remember who Timothy was. He was basically the mentor, uh, or he was the mentee, and Paul was mentoring him for years. Paul referred to himself as the spiritual father for Timothy. This was his friend. This is the one he loved. This is the one that he had incredible joy just in being with. He says, I am going to send him to you so that he can encourage you. The second one that is mentioned is an individual named Epaphroditus, and we don't hear a whole lot about Epaphroditus, but he was one who had been there ministering with Paul and had brought great encouragement to him. During his time, Epaphroditus became very ill to the point that Epaphroditus almost died. He has since recovered, and he's doing great, and this brings great joy and encouragement to the Apostle Paul. And he says, but I will send him to you so that he can encourage you as well. Now, I don't know about you, but there are certain people in my life that I would love to send somewhere else to encourage them. But I'm not going to pick the two people that bring me the most encouragement. There are people that get on my nerves, and I want to send them someplace else. The Apostle Paul chooses the two people that are with him and that he is most grateful for. And he says... I will send them to you so that they can encourage you. What an incredible act of humility and sacrifice on Paul's part. By the way, Paul is sitting in a prison when he writes this. Paul knows what suffering is all about. He probably needs as much encouraging as anybody else. The people he is writing to, most of them are not sitting in a prison. The people that he's writing to can go home to their families at night. You would think they have enough encouragement. Paul had every reason to say, you know what? You guys are good. I'm going to keep Timothy and Epaphroditus here with me. But Paul, in his humility, chose to put the needs of others before himself. He chose the act of sacrifice because it was not about what he wanted It was about what was best for others and the kingdom of God. Perhaps it would be good for us to consider the words of John the Baptist as recorded in John chapter 3 verse 30, where he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. How many of us have been blessed so much, but have kept the blessing to ourselves and even thought to ourselves, I want more. He must increase, but I must decrease. We need to consider 
the way Jesus looked at things when we look to the cross and Christ. When Jesus looked at others, he saw people in need. He saw a world that desperately needed redemption. And the only way that it would come is through the grace of Jesus Christ. He knew that he had to go to the cross, so he willingly became that silent lamb who was led to the slaughter. He willingly came and took on the abuse of others, not because he had to, but simply because he loved the people that he was working with. You know, it's interesting. The Bible tells us that Jesus, who was very involved in the act of creation, is also involved in the act of sustaining creation. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Hebrews 1.3 says, He upholds the universe by the words of his power. So I want you to follow where I'm going with this. When the Romans arrest Jesus, in essence, they grab him with hands that he not only created, but was at that moment holding them together. The power they use to grab him comes from him. With muscles that he powers, they stretch their hands back and they slap his face. They use the glands that he controls to work up saliva, to be able to spit on him. They nail him with metal that he created to a tree that he spoke into existence. And he is able to stop it at any moment. Yet he chooses not to. Have you considered the humility and sacrifice that has been extended for you? The things that you have, do you deserve those things? Are they things that somehow you've earned because of your hard work? I commend you for hard work, but your hard work is not why you deserve anything. For without the grace of God, you have nothing. Through the grace of God, we have everything we need. So often we become so focused on the things that we have and the things that we can accomplish and we lose sight of the fact that without him, we are nothing. Today, if I could challenge you with anything, my challenge would simply be this. Look to the cross. Look to Christ. Everything that you have comes from him. You can be the wealthiest person in this room, and I will celebrate with you. I hope you tithe. You can be the most intelligent person in the world, and you may be able to stand up and even preach and teach better than anybody else in here could ever even imagine. But without Jesus Christ as the center of your life, it will never be enough. Only through Jesus Christ can we truly find fulfillment. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper this morning. Something we do on a relatively regular basis, but as we do so today, I am going to ask you to specifically consider what I just shared with you. I'm going to, and I rarely would read something to you twice, but I want to read that last statement that I read to you. The Bible tells us that Jesus, who was very involved in the act of creation, is also involved in the act of sustaining creation. 
Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Hebrews 1.3 says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So follow this. When the Romans arrest Jesus, they grab him with hands that he not only created, but at that moment he was sustaining. In essence, the power they use to grab him comes from him. With muscles that he powers, they stretch their hands back and slap his face. They use the glands that he controls to work up the saliva to spit on him. They nail him with metal he created to a tree that he spoke into existence, knowing he could stop it at any time. As we participate in communion this morning, I want you to consider the sacrifice that was made. At any moment, Jesus Christ could have put a stop to it. The soldiers who held the hammer, who held him, at any moment, Jesus could have decided, you know what, this is enough, and they could have collapsed to the ground. All of a sudden, their hand might have lost all of their strength, and the hammer would have dropped to the ground. All of a sudden, their mouth would have been so dry, they would have been unable to spit on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ could have thought, caused the thorns that were dug into his forehead to somehow become like sponges and cause him no harm at all. As they reared back with that whip, Jesus could have allowed that whip to fall apart. Yet every single act of the crucifixion, he embraced, not because he wanted to suffer, but he wanted to be the sacrifice for you and for me. As we participate in communion this morning, I want you to simply consider how great a sacrifice it was. I'm not asking you today to lay down your physical life for others, but I am asking you today to lay down the pride that you have lived for and to simply ask yourself, am I willing to live as Christ lived? in service not only to my God, but to the world around me? You say you are, and I hope the answer is yes, I'm willing. We'll know it if you live that way moving forward. It's the nicest way to put it. I think people in church often we have good intentions. We want very much to live in a way that honors God, but somewhere along the way we choose to honor ourselves in the way we live our lives, and we need to live for him instead. It's a different kind of sermon this morning because my goal was to point us simply to the communion table. As you participate in communion this morning, consider the sacrifice he made, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. He sacrificed everything, not because he had to, because he wanted to. Would you be willing to sacrifice your all for him too?